Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, The Power of the Gospel, with a message titled, The Weight of Glory. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I want to begin by telling a story. It's a true story, a story that most of you know. It's the story of an ancient king, a very tall and imposing man, a man who had all the physical characteristics that made him look like a great leader. But he was really quite mad. He would fly into terrible rages. He would accuse all sorts of people who were loyal to him of trying to overthrow his regime. Once he even threatened to kill his own son, the heir to the throne. And he would hurl his spear at one of his servants, trying to pin him to the wall. Yeah, he was crazy as a loon and suspicious and very aggressive. And when he was in the worst state of madness, it seemed that nothing but nothing could restrain him. But they found a boy, a shepherd, who played the harp for him. And whenever the music played, it seemed that the music quieted his spirit and he became himself again, at least for a time. And as the music played, he was in his right mind. But when the music was gone, the madness returned. Well, you know, the king's name is Saul. I tell about him because in some ways, every single Christian is a bit like Saul. Every single one of us has two natures, two different personalities living within us and fighting for supremacy. We don't want to do evil, but whenever we want to do good, evil is right there at hand. Impure thoughts, sensuality, jealousy, outbursts of anger, needless worry, bitterness, abuse, and selfish use of power, slandering others, boastful, and practicing raw idolatry. It seems, like Saul, we are given to madness. But then the shepherd comes and plays for us, and I'm speaking of the good shepherd, the man of sorrows, who laid down his life for us, and his music restrains our madness. And he has given us the Holy Spirit, who always draws our attention back to the chief shepherd, and only this can restrain the madness of sin. And if by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we will live. And so we fight the madness by walking with the Spirit. That, in essence, is the entire message of Romans 5 to 8. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the misdeeds of the body. Your madness will be restrained, and you'll be yourself, the new self, created to be free in Christ Jesus, created to find delight in the things of God. You might think at this point, well, is that it? I mean, is that my life? And if it is, didn't Saul fail? Ultimately, the madness overtook him, and he lost the battle and his soul. Well, yes, he did, because the music was not inside of him, but it is in you. Do you know, and I've learned there is a great victory in the life of the Spirit, Spirit-controlled, Spirit-directed life. There is a great power available to all of us, and there's also a great struggle. And what I'm about to say needs to be qualified, so hear me out before you form a conclusion from what I say. In a sense, our experience is like the experience of Jesus. Now, as I've said, that needs to be qualified, for Christ never sinned, nor was there within him the madness of the flesh that led him into sin. But I'm thinking about Christ's first and his second coming. In his first coming, he came into a world filled with suffering, in which he himself was called upon to suffer. He experienced the madness of a world sold into sin. Jesus came in poverty, lived in humility, and was mocked and lied about and slandered and then crucified on a cross. But in his second coming, he will come not in weakness, but in splendor, in power, and in great glory. 
So in a real way, this is illustrative of a tension that every believer understands. We know both suffering and glory. We know both defeat and victory. We know both the painful status of living in this world, and yet we already have a foretaste of the glory that has already begun in us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, we can look behind us and see the effects of sin and look ahead of us and see the fruit of redemption. It's because of this that Christians can't be pessimists. We know that our best days are not behind us. We are assured that they lie ahead of us. You know, some time ago, a popular preacher wrote a book entitled, Your Best Life Now. But that's not true of believers. But it is unbelievers who have their best life now. We anticipate the final victory over all of the madness, the madness that remains in us and the madness that reigns in the world. You know, from Romans 8.18 to the end of the chapter, we find a passage rich and deep in hope. There's a hope for the creation. There's a hope for each believer. God is solidly in control. There is a golden chain that binds us to our Savior that cannot be broken. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and in all things we are more than conquerors. And so Romans 8.18 transitions from the battle for holiness that has been the subject of discussion up to this point in time and flicks our headlights on a high beam and invites us to look down the road. The verse begins with the word for. This indicates that what follows now to the end of Romans 8 is a further amplification of what Paul has hinted at in verse 17. Let's read verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer in order that we may also be glorified with him. In verse 17, Paul pulled back the curtain, as it were, and helped every believer understand our present experience. Suffering and the hope of glory now are a part of our experience. Those two matters overlap. Madness and beauty make up our lives now. And then to amplify that thought, Paul adds a thought, the one found in chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of the present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, we've noticed the word for, but now let's notice the word consider. I consider, says Paul. The word is actually a mathematical word in the Greek. It's a word for calculating a sum. If you compare your present suffering to your future glory, if you could weigh it and calculate the weight of eternity, the present suffering would be light in comparison. Now, Paul has a scale in mind, and it's not like the scale you find in a bathroom or electronic scales that we have in a number of different businesses. He has in mind one of those ancient scales that had a center stand or a center pole, and from it, two arms would branch out, each holding a basket. And if you place on the one side of the scale all the sufferings of the present hour and watch that side fall to the bottom, it seems weighty and highly significant. Now into the basket on the other side, we place the weight of glory. The glory that Paul has in mind is the adoption or the the promise of an heir who will rule and reign with Christ. And then the weight on the side of glory is so significant and so heavy that the sum total of the weight of our sufferings is simply nothing in comparison. See, the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory. It's a silly comparison. It's like putting a feather on one side of a scale and then a 20-pound gold bar on the other. The scales fall so suddenly to the one side, for the comparison of the two are not worth comparing at all. 
But when Paul speaks of the weight of glory, what exactly does he have in mind? And it is that that we must examine in today's message. But before we do, let's consider the weight of the sufferings we bear. As I think about these things, I'm reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The idea is the same, except in 2 Corinthians, suffering is considered to be light and momentary or of little impact or for a brief period of time. And yet these small and insignificant sufferings are important nonetheless, for they are being used by God, says Paul, to prepare for us the significance or the weight of glory. Now, before we move on to consider the weight of glory, I want to stop and consider the weight of our present sufferings. What kind of sufferings does Paul have in mind? I have no doubt that one of the sufferings he is considering has everything to do with the the kind of thing he spoke of in Romans 7.24, where he cries out, O wretched man that I am. He is speaking of the sufferings of resisting temptation. In In this, it seems like the sufferings are in some ways like the sufferings of Christ. You might remember that Hebrews 5, 7 says of Jesus, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The picture of Jesus is a picture of suffering as he resists temptation. Unlike us, when we yield to temptation, we find out that the pressure is immediately gone, but Jesus, who never resisted, found that the pressure to yield to temptation only increased, and we hear him crying out to God for his power. The intensity of his battle against sin is a terrible intensity, and for all of us who take holiness seriously, it is also so for us, but there is more. And when we come back, we're going to consider the full weight of the suffering of believers and then place on the opposite side of the scale the full weight of the glory to be revealed. After Paul has finished telling us what it means to be adopted into God's family, we now begin to understand how this shapes our experience as believers. There is this tension between having an eternal hope, yet at the same time we know that our lives will involve suffering. Yet even though we suffer, Paul says, it is not even close to the weight of glory that is coming. When we come back, we'll discover what this term really means. It's never too early to start planning your travels for the new year. And our April 2024 cruise is filling up faster than we'd imagined. You won't want to miss this incredible opportunity to vacation and be under the direct teaching of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld. Laugh and be encouraged with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and share moments of musical inspiration with special guest Amanda Stott. From April 5th to the 14th, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean, including Miami, Porta Plata, St. John's, and more. With breathtaking scenery, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement, it's guaranteed to be an unforgettable vacation. For more information, to download the itinerary or to sign up, just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are used and all related costs are covered by participants.
know, we've seen how Paul superimposes two realities in the life of believers, the reality of suffering up against the reality of the glory to be revealed. We have begun the comparison where Paul begins it. Because he has been describing the battle against sin, Paul must at the very least mean that learning to put the flesh to death means suffering. Once we determine not to please ourselves but our Lord and Savior, suffering does ensue. But suffering must not be restricted to that. We need to remember that Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Rome, and we need to consider suffering from their perspective. For instance, in the Philippian letter, while Paul is imprisoned in Rome, he tells the Philippians of the intimidation that Christians felt in Rome. Speaking out for Christ would result in financial pressure, the threat of imprisonment, and even death lay before them. And of course, Paul would have understood that. He describes his situation in 2 Corinthians 11:25 to 28. There he says, five times I received from the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." See, this for Paul was the physical toll his ministry took on him, a heavy toll indeed. And it would all end with his execution. He was beheaded in Rome, an order that was given by the Roman Emperor Nero in the year AD 68. His life of extreme hardship and suffering ended at the executioner's chopping block. You know, we've discussed the weight of suffering under temptation, a weight that is only understood by those who actually resist temptation than the weight of persecution or the suffering for the gospel. But should we keep the suffering Paul is referring to only to those items? Well, I think not, and, and here's why. You know, back in chapter 8, verse 10, Paul referred to his body being dead because of sin. He was talking about the fact that death is at work in all of our bodies. That's the reality of life on this side while we await the glory to be revealed. And if that's the case, it seems logical to assume that Paul spoke of all kinds of suffering. You know, someone might complain here. Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. There's nothing light and momentary about some suffering. I mean, what's light and momentary about lifelong chronic pain? What's light and momentary about crippling arthritis? Now, I remember a very dear friend I had years ago. His name is Harry. Harry was an elder in a church I was pastoring, and, and I must say I loved Harry. Harry was a man of wisdom, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and I was young, and I wanted to be like Harry. He was an older man. And one day, Harry called me, and he had something he needed to tell me. I sat with Harry in his office, and Harry had been slurring his speech as of late, and he had gone for multiple tests to find out where the problem lay, and they had just found out what the problem was. And he told me as we sat in his office, he said, I have Lou Gehrig's disease. I'm going to die a very difficult death. And he knew how he would die. He would gradually lose all muscle function. And Harry said, I've asked the Lord for just one thing, not to take away my power of speech. I always want to be able to utter praise to God as long as I live. But it didn't happen that way for Harry. His speech was the very first thing that he lost. And I grieved for him. His suffering seemed so weighty and it seemed to go on for so long. 
You know, some religions like Hinduism teach that all matter, including evil and suffering, is only an illusion. But that's not what the Bible teaches. You can't read the story of Jesus suffering in Gethsemane that way. It was real and it was horrible and it was heavy. The Bible never sweeps our suffering away. It's your calling to suffer with Christ. It was God's plan that you identify with your Savior in this way. He wants you to understand the suffering of your Savior. You may go through suffering because you're called into mission or because you're called to sacrifice your finances or simply because God in his sovereignty has called you to walk through the storm of a debilitating disease. So please hear me. I am not belittling your suffering. If you're especially overwhelmed by suffering or sorrow today, I weep with you and Christ cares for you. And if you're in Christ, your present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory to be revealed. In comparison to the present difficulties, notice I'm saying in comparison to the sufferings of the moment, these sufferings will seem light. All the weight lies on the side of the scale that holds the glory that is about to be revealed. But what does Paul have in mind here? We know that whenever a believer breathes his last, there is at that moment for them an outburst of beauty, of inexpressible joy, of delight, of soul rapture that is so profound and real and everlasting and heavy that even the greatest suffering you'll go through in this world is light in comparison. You simply can't compare your sorrow to the joy that is waiting for you. Now, we know that there is an intermediate state, and we know only a small amount regarding this state. Whenever a believer dies, they are at that moment immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 is adamant about this. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Once the body dies, we are in the Lord's presence. And what is our state at that moment? Well, in Philippians 1.23, Paul says that he desires to depart and be with Christ. He says, for that is better by far. And we can see that Paul did not believe that Christians would go into some kind of stasis at death. They would be in a state in which their present circumstances would be better than what they experienced on earth. But even though death for a believer is but a portal into inexpressible joy, I am convinced that this is not what Paul has in mind in Romans 8.18. The glory to be revealed of which he speaks is the glory in which believers act as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, we do know that while Paul taught that all believers upon death would immediately be in the presence of Christ, yet at the same time, the body would die and fall asleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of the resurrection of the body. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, he says that in that time, we will bear the image of the man of heaven. He means that the body we shall have will be like the raised body of Jesus from the tomb, never again subject to pain or aging or the fight against the flesh or the downward tendency of death. The sting of death would end. But still, I don't think this is what Paul has in mind in Romans 8.18. Not only will we stand in glory and receive an incorruptible body, but we will be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. See, when God created Adam, he created him as the ruler over all the works of his hands. He created him to govern and to give order to and to direct the creation on God's behalf. Adam was given significance and purpose, and his life and his actions would bring glory to God as he used all of his creativity in his governance of all things. 
But Adam abandoned his high calling. But, says Paul, the children of the second Adam, Jesus will not. And once we begin to rule over all the works of God on his behalf, we will come to see how it is that our sufferings were used to shape and mold us and to maximize our joy and effectiveness as heirs for all of eternity. See, and once we see that, we will also see that none of our sufferings were random, but all were used for God's glory and for our long-term good. And as we go through eternity, learning to be productive and effective in the governance of all of God's creation, and our hearts are more flooded with joy than we can imagine, we will remember Paul's scale. We will realistically place all the sufferings of the hour that we have lived through, and we will shake our heads in wonder when we see how light it seemed in comparison to the weight of glory that has been revealed to us. The conclusion of the matter, do not be in despair, but be filled with hope. Your very best days lie before you. John, I just wanted to ask one really practical question. What do you tell believers in the midst of their suffering? I think as so many individuals have observed already before me that a very important part of being with believers who suffer is listening to their story. I, I think uh, before we jump right in and say something, we need to hear and understand and empathize with and deeply enter into their own experience. But whatever we say in the end of the day, we must say words that are infused with hope. Uh, we need them to understand that even though the present day is indeed a dark one, it's not the final chapter that has been written, that God would not have allowed them to go through this were he not also at the same time promising them something that was altogether glorious. What a wonderful, hope-filled message Romans 8.18 provides on how our sufferings in this fallen world should not leave us in despair. Rather, they point us to the ultimate hope, the glory that awaits all believers in Christ when He comes to judge and restore the earth. May this truth continue to give us strength and comfort for the difficult days ahead or even right now. Let us learn to put our hope in the glorious future that God has in store for us. Well, on tomorrow's program, we'll continue to unpack Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 19 to 22 with Dr. Newfeld. So tune in again to our series, The Power of the Gospel. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The Bible makes it clear there is not a single passing moment where God is not present, active, sustaining. He is sovereign over everything, the oceans, the valleys, our tribulations, and our successes. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. How comforting to know that God is always present. That is the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's upcoming calendar. Our 2024 In All Things Scripture Reading Calendar pivots around Dr. John Newfeld's upcoming book, Arriving in the New Year. With stunning imagery, sneak peek quotes from Dr. John's book, and inspiring scripture, it reminds us that God is never far. We encourage you to request your free 2024 Scripture Wall Calendar and follow along with a daily Bible reading plan inside. 
To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.